Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, don't forget to keep the wind of the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Support the people that support us and also uh, try to uh, be sure you make it to my streaming show. You can find it at uh, drdrew.tv, also YouTube or Facebook, Dr. Drew slash Dr. Drew. And uh, we do some interesting stuff there. Also, I'm over on Locals right now, so you can sort of be a part of the chats we have there, maybe even get in on the big chats we do that we do on the streaming show. It is my privilege to bring Dr. Sean B. Carroll into the program. The book is Series of Fortunate Events, Chance and the Making of the Planet, Life and You. This is SeanBCarroll.com, also at Sean, B-I-O-L, Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. And uh, not to be confused with the physicist, Sean Carroll, that I've had on the show a couple of times, but I actually got to know Sean B. Carroll, the biologist, because of an interview by Sean Carroll, the physicist, which uh, lit me up and intrigued me, and I got your book, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Drew. It's uh if everyone's confused, it's understandable. It's so weird that, that he came upon you and he's like, he, he said he was, he was like uh, Googling Sean Carroll or something and you came up. Yeah, well, we actually doing Sean's show is the first time we've sort of been on the same program at the same time. All sorts of journalists have threatened to do it just to have a little fun with it. Oh, that's so we, funny. So you've been aware of each other all along. Yeah, I've even been on a panel with his wife, who's a great writer. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, first time we'd ever been together. That is crazy. Uh, let's see. So let me give you some of the particulars on this, Dr. Carroll, which is um, Washington University in St. Louis, where he got his BA in biology, PhD in immunology at Tufts, postdoctoral at University of Colorado uh, Boulder. Are you teaching now? No, I, I am on the faculty at the University of Maryland, but I spend most of my time actually producing educational materials, producing documentary films, and oh, writing wow. sort of science communication. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. Um, and so uh, A Series of Fortunate Events is uh, the latest book, and I, I want to start at the end of the book, and, and, and uh, if you don't mind, I was fascinated by the interviews at the end, and were some of them fictional? Yeah, so... So I, I got confused stuff. a little bit. I mean, I, I, saw, I saw my buddy, uh, uh, Family Guy. Uh, Seth, Seth MacFarlane in there. I'm like, oh, he's actually talking to Seth MacFarlane. And then Albert Camus shows in. I'm like, hang on a second. I'm confused. Yeah. So, the, well, the book deals with this idea of chance. And chance brings up some philosophical questions. And I just discovered sort of in exploring this territory that perhaps next to scientists, the one group of people that think about chance and or at least see the world as driven by chance are comedians. Oh, my God. And I thought, well, why is why is this so? But if you can pick up these themes in their work, you can see it in Ricky Gervais's work, um, Eric Idle and some of the songs of Monty Python, and all this. So I started reaching out to some folks to fi- figure out why this was. And like Eric Idle uh, was kind enough to, to give me uh, answers to my questions. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to get all these people together in a room? But then I thought about some of my dead heroes, like Albert Camus or the writer Kurt Vonnegut. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to take literary license here and create a conversation Okay. among these people about the meaning of chance, many of whom, almost all of whom had had some close call in their lives, which is sort of, I think, what brings this, you know, this idea to chance, you know, home very, very strongly is a close call or some trauma when you start thinking about the accidental nature of life and, you know, why are we lucky and others not? And to drive home the point about Seth MacFarlane, he almost got on one of the 9-11 planes, the one out of Boston, if I remember right. Do you know this? Yeah. And uh, I'd forgotten that story until I read it again in the book. Yeah, it it was American Flight 11. He was was partying the night before at his alma mater in Rhode Island and came to Logan Airport in Boston. He was just about a half hour late because of actually just a clerical error from his uh, travel manager. Otherwise, you know, we don't don't get uh, all those seasons of Family Guy and we don't get Ted, which would have been heartbreaking for me. (laughs) Are you a Bostonian? No, I just, the sense, Seth's sense of humor uh, kind of hits it. me on the right bones. In fact, just a month ago or so, I got to have a one-on-one with Seth uh, under the auspices of the National Academy. We got to talk about this again. And, uh, you know, he's very circumspect about it. He just, he says, you know, he doesn't believe in fate. He just thinks these things happen most of the time without us knowing them, that, you know, had we come to a traffic light two minutes earlier or two minutes later, things would have been different. 
Um, so it, it really didn't rattle him as much as I think a lot of close calls do rattle people. Interesting. Uh, I, I mean, Seth is <laughs> Seth's hard to rattle, to be fair. I mean, I've known him for a long time. Uh, but, but let's go into probability. Uh, I, I mean, we live in a time when not only t- two things are sort of problematic for me now as it pertains to the education around a biology. People don't seem to understand that they're biological and what that means. And B, basic principles of math, particular probability. I mean, in this day and age when you have a 99% of survival from COVID, people have to see one story and they go, that's me. That's me. I, I have a 90% cure from my prostate cancer operation, and I consider that cured. Uh, you yeah. know what I'm saying? That, so yeah. w- what's gone wrong? I want to do a deeper dive in, A, what's gone on with our inability to assess probabilities, and our brain doesn't do a good job with it naturally. You have to be trained into it. Right, right. Now, big numbers, I think, throw us. Plus, I think we're confused by probability and by chance for lots of reasons. I, our brains, I think, are pattern recognition machines, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if we see a pattern, we sort of think there must be something underlying that, and that allows us to predict the next event. Yes, but what if we're just looking at a string of random events like coin tosses or cards being played or whatever it might be? We think yes. <laughs> we yes. have these powerful brains that we know what the next thing's going to be. So we're going to bet on red or we're going to bet that, you know, the next child's going to be a girl or whatever when it is a completely independent and random event. So we fool ourselves often that, that we understand something, you know, in a non-random way when it's totally random. And we also get thrills by that. And yeah. you would be a better expert on this than I by far, which is the reward system. You know, you're playing blackjack. Every winning hand is a great hit. It yeah. just it just doesn't seem like losing hurts as much as winning feels great, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're just by a bit losing, you'll stay at that table because you're enjoying the wins, even if even if you're getting a little bit outnumbered on the losses. So we're you know, we're we're fooled by this. And I think we got our emotions wrapped up in the, in the possibilities of winning. And that's why we, you know, we love games of chance. And, and yet when it comes to our own lives, we really would like to eliminate chance as much as possible. Right. We, Which is interesting. Really like to be in right. It's interesting that we like to pl- massage and play with that when we're not actually having viability stakes involved with it. It's just yeah. about numbers and money. And you'd be su- maybe surprised to learn that a lot of gambling addicts, actually get high off losing they they actually they actually don't feel they will say things to me like i don't feel alive unless my back's against the wall that's when it gets most exciting you know that's when i love so it's kind of more deading high than it is winning high Uh, and and there's various there's various flavors of gambling addiction out there but what a common one is that what about near misses? Because that's something I also read about in the literature that, you know, you came so close to the, you know, to the royal flush, yes. or to whatever, to that winning. And, and that, that pulls you back because you think, Correct. oh, I just missed. I yes. just missed. Yes. If it weren't for another card or another this, I'd be, in, I'd be all set. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That would be my wife. And that's her, that's her, that's her, that's sort of a common, uh, that's, that I would argue that's probably not even a gambling addicts thing. That's just a normal human thing where sure. it's they, they, sure. again, but that's the death of math. They're not really assessing that a near miss is a complete miss. It's like, it's a total miss and, and yeah. they, they see it as a near hit. Yeah. So there's been, you know, there have been crazes in history in the Italian lottery or in casinos or whatever, when there sort of becomes a frenzy around like a number that hasn't been hit on the roulette wheel or a number that hasn't been hit in the lottery. And people can get really pulled into this thinking that a number is due when, of course, it's the same probability as it was, you know, on the previous draw. That's so interesting. We get get pulled into this and that's one of our challenges is, is, you know, we have this great pattern machine, but but we get fooled. And, um, and and we don't do very well with large numbers. And, and you whatsoever. may not have an opinion about this, but I, I asked Sean about this, and I'm, I'm not sure if we ever really fully fleshed it out, but what does, does probability exist, or is it just incomplete knowledge? And if probability exists, what does that tell us about the physical universe? Oh, my goodness. Uh, how long is this podcast? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think in everyday terms uh, – Probability exists because look, if you've got two outcomes, so let's take having a boy or a girl child, right? Mm-hmm. We can know what those probabilities are, and it's pretty close, close, sorry, pretty close to a coin flip. 
we don't really know of other forces in play that are going to tip that much and that, or anything that we could do to, to, to get a different kind of outcome. So there really looks to be in nature a good number of phenomena that are as random as we can discern. But, so but hang on. That, but, yeah. but if we knew the forces affecting every sperm as it swam up the canal, right? Wouldn't we be able to predict with some finite yeah. ability what, what, the, what was going to happen? If we had, it, particularly if we had, uh, what's the name of the, the demon? Was it uh, LaPlanck's demon? Maxwell's demon. Yeah, Maxwell's demon. Yeah, if we could predict everything. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Unless actually nature is just happy with half and half because that's a good sex ratio, right. you know, for right. species, right? So right. If, if basically having no factor that tilts it either way works, then maybe you really are looking at a random process. Mm. At the same level, if you go deeper into DNA, and this has now really been studied at, at a level that physicists would admire, that mutation changes in the sequences of DNA really do appear at random across DNA or among individuals, et cetera. And, and we can, this is, this is something where we had that sense for decades, but we really can sort of captured it in the act. And this is enlightening because we also understand that mutation is really seems to be not a bug in DNA, but a feature that it, it it's a product of the, chemistry that DNA uses. It's sort of the intrinsic character of DNA. So DNA is going to change no matter what, because of just the chemistry of DNA. It's not a mistake. It's not, it's not something, an external insult or anything like that. It's just going to change on its own. And that looks like a random process. So I think that, I think randomness does exist. I think there's other cases where something is happening and we just have not identified enough variables to be able to predict when or why it happens. Like there are, you know, flips in uh, climate, for example, that we've seen over history that we don't quite understand, but we think there must be a lot of forces in play. It's just, it doesn't have a rhythm that allows us to say, oh, it's because of this regular thing happening that it happens. That's probably just a matter of incomplete knowledge. But but, but probability exists. I I agree with you. And, And I always think about biological systems as highly probabilistic. I mean, it's way too complex to be the, deterministic i mean I, I mean even if it's you know just determining how a protein folds based on the laws of thermodynamics oh, i mean yeah. there's a ton yeah. of probability in that i mean there's just so much stuff that is all based on probability so when people make uh, sort of sweeping deterministic definitive descriptions of things like nutrition or you know i just go no no you can't do that it's too it's too i, I mean you can talk about you know, blood moving through the body in terms of you know, the, the gross physiology of that, but what's going across the brush border of a single cell, even in the gut, is just too complicated for me. Yeah, no, it's it it is. Um, so I think you know, we biologists and physicians have to accept sort of levels of understanding, um, levels of description that you know are are sufficient for us to have a sort of enough knowledge of the sort of behavior of a system, but not perhaps detailed and instantaneous, you know, moment, right. knowing moment to moment what's happening. And, and most of these things that, that we talk about uh, on the physiological or medical level are really kind of emergent properties, right? I mean, yes. uh, fundamentally, I mean, I mean, I think the other Sean Carroll has convinced me that fundamentally we're just one giant wave equation. <laughs> we're just one giant wave function. <laughs> uh, and, and then emerge it from that is physics and chemistry. And then emerge it from that is biochemistry. And then emerge it from that is physiology. And, you know, we sort of emerge from that. These are all, what, what do you have any, I, do you have any opinion about what we mean when we say an emergent property? Well, I, I guess I would say sort of if I was in an elevator with someone, I'd say sort of, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Right, you actually right. predict the prop. You can't predict the property of the system merely from its components. Right. That there's new things that emerge at that next level. And, up. and, and not because and, of incomplete knowledge, because something else has emerged. Yeah. I yeah. mean, here and here's something that comes from my domain of biology. You know, pretty much if you ground up a giraffe and a dog and a human, you'd find all the same biochemistry. Yeah, but clearly these are different creatures that do very different things, um, and are you know different constructions in three in three dimensions. So, so the molecules aren't enough to tell us about the creature. 
And I, that's, I think that is a good example of sort of the emergent properties. Even if you knew every molecule in the human body, or for example, if you knew every molecule in the human body and every molecule in the in a chimpanzee's body, it turns out the molecules would be incredibly similar. I, I mean, almost, yeah, almost all the way. Almost identical, yeah. But, yeah. but we would agree that these are really different beings. Which which brings up another topic. I know I'm jumping around an awful lot, but I got lots of things I wanted to talk about today. And and that is, and I want to go back to the start of life just to make things really easy. But before I do, before I do, um, that's always a lot. I, I know, I know. But the but one thing I don't think you and the other Sean Carroll talked about that I'm always fascinated by is speciation. How we account is one thing to account for uh, drift and change and and and. Uh, mutations and you know changes all, all kinds of functional changes and anatomical changes but speciation is sort of a special thing how do we account for that well there's there's kind of i'm going to give you two descriptions of speciation so let's, first of all let's just say speciation let's say it's one species becoming two okay mm-hmm. let's just say there's something happening there's two ways and i think we can build a picture of it in in listeners minds the most common way we understand it to happen is for creatures to get isolated Darwin famously, the, the birds of the Galapagos or the tortoises of the Galapagos on different islands, isolated, given time, these things, these populations change on their own to a level where if they were to make contact again, they might not interbreed. And that's geographic. Just get things separated and let them kind of cook on their own. And that will happen. The other is genetic. And it's about that incompatibility. And that really do- requires time of separation. And I I actually talk about this in the book because there's tons of work going on in speciation because our our thinking about it's changed a lot. It used to almost be like, you know, a hard and fast rule that nothing could breed. But, you know, listeners will know that, you know, most of us have a piece of Neanderthal, you know, have Neanderthal in us because (laughs) species interbreed and Homo sapiens and and Neanderthals, you know, bred in the Middle East, um, you know, 50, 60,000 years ago. So it's not a hard and fast rule about not breeding, but at a certain point, there's no more, it, it's incompatible. You can't, you can't. And, and, and what is, that. what is going on biologically when there's incompatibility? Do we know? It, it's usually just genetic inca- incompatibility that the genes of one creature, even if mating happens. So there's, you could stop at mating. If mating doesn't happen, game over, right? There's no game yeah, to have. Yeah. But if you get, if you get past that behavioral or anatomical barrier, the genes of one creature and the genes of the other creature just won't work together. There's been too much time that those genes have tick, 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 moved, you know, changed enough that they don't work. And there's actually work now saying that probably for, you know, creatures like mammals and birds, reptiles, that might take about 2 million years to pile up enough differences that even if you got back together and even if you made it, nothing's going to happen from that. So speciation can be, really cleanly geographic, just isolated, but it's also genetic. And what's happening is the piling up of random mutations that essentially make those groups of creatures no longer compatible. One of the things I've always wondered, and and your book makes a lot of the uh, major uh, astronomical catastrophes that have hit this this globe uh, and the big upheavals in evolution as a result – I've always sort of been a, had a little incredulity on some of the things that aren't raised about that. Like, for instance, I mean, you 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 get you drill into the Yucatan Peninsula and, and that that collision. And let me just first talk about the global aspect. And you make the point about you know what would happen in the immediate surrounding and what would happen around you know with the weather changes and stuff. What if there is a liquefaction of the of the crust or the crust? Uh, what about waves moving through the crust to the other side of the globe? Even I don't hear yeah. people really talking about the fact that they don't think massively enough about what might have been happening with one of these collisions. Well, you you got a good instinct there, Drew. So so let's talk first of all about the impact and what we do know because this is this was proposed forty years ago on on the basis of physical evidence that. An asteroid hit the globe and caused a mass extinction that took out the dinosaurs. I think most people have heard that story. But scientists continue to study this to try to understand, well, what exactly happened? And the forensic trail of this is it's all over the globe. I mean, there's lots of places you can go and you can put your finger right on that boundary between two worlds, where below is the age of reptiles and you got dinosaur bones, and above is the age of mammals, where 
you know, that, that's that's in, one that's one of these collisions, by the way, right? There's that's, there's that's, well, earlier that's stuff. One. That's a big one. That, that's yeah. the mother of all accidents for that, that we have evidence of. That we have evidence of, right? That we have evidence of. Right. It's, to our knowledge, it's the largest collision in, in 500 million years, and the evidence for it is everywhere. And I talk about it a lot in the book because, to me, you know, past history, the history before that's really interesting. But in terms of our lives, we being mammals, humans getting here. I kind of feel that that's it's almost like a reset point. You know, it's the it's the most recent reset point for life on Earth, and it's tangible and familiar to most people. So I I, I make a lot of that. Now we know that that impact, which drilled about a hundred mile wide and twenty five mile deep crater in Mexico, and blew that stuff up in the atmosphere into this kind of toxic stew that circulated the globe. That was bad. Stuff rained down like little fiery hot meteors, setting the globe afire making the atmosphere really hot, um, blocking out the sun. That's all, that's all very bad. But people are looking. You just raised this. There is the possibility that that impact was strong enough to set off volcanism. Sure. Or to amplify volcanism. Why wouldn't it have? And so people right? are explaining it. It's, unfortunately, it's such a unique set of circumstances. It's like we don't have a lot of comparisons to go on. It's, right. So I think it, it requires some, well, digging. Yeah. <laughs> To 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 kind of to sort that out, but it is on the, it is in play to say what other kinds of phenomena would have been triggered by that asteroid impact, um, and particularly in the area of, of of unleashing you know massive volcanism, which could be you know adding to the stew of what's in the atmosphere. And then what I this is the the point of my question really, which is uh, it, it's this comes off speciation and on other aspects of the geological impact and, and meteorological impact. Why don't people make more of the potential of the biological impact of radiation or a virus or something coming in with that asteroid that really changed the biological ecosystem and led to the the mammalian uh, sort of uh, revolution, so to speak. I mean, no, no one ever talks about yeah. that. Maybe there was a massive speciation episode. You know what I mean? That that suddenly, well, there was no compatibility between the non-radiated and, and, and a lot of stuff died because it was too irradiated, or one virus destroyed some species but made another one. Right? Yeah. I, no one ever yeah, talks about be, that. Yeah. Well, I think probably you know this is case where absence of evidence just. You know, we, we we're kind of silent on this. Yeah. Look, after that impact, which we know and we can model and we can tell from the physical evidence, you know, it was hell on earth yeah. for decades. Yeah. And if you block out the sun, we know that plants are going to die. And we know that, I mean, think how bad things had to be for three quarters of all plant species to go extinct. Yeah. So the other thing about things like viruses is they tend to be specific to a group. You're talking about you knocked out all the small and large creatures in the ocean from tiny little forams to giant mosasaurs. Yeah. You knocked out three quarters of all plants. You knocked out the big dinosaurs. So you know you have ecological catastrophe everywhere. Now, as the world tries to rebound, who knows what's going on? Right. Because you, have, you are looking at complete chaos. So right, I have no right. idea what's going on in terms of, you know, pandemics among other species right. or – um, you know, whether, whether and microbes, you know, the first, microbe, the yeah. first thing you see in that layer are fungal spores. The uh -huh. world was covered with fungus uh -huh. eating on decaying matter. So, oh. you know, before you see the mammals come back, you're basically in, in fungal town. Wow. And the, and the forest canopy is gone. Huh. So this is really apocalyptic sort of thing, which, and, you know, we don't have many examples. We, we only have one example to study. So we, we don't know much about, about, all the phenomena that would be unleashed, but for sure, um, you know, it, it's not anything we want to ever. No, no, <clears throat> I know. I sample. understand. Yeah. And it's, it's so weird that we always thought ourselves so special that magically we'd be the one planet that didn't have a meteor impact. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. Well, the thing is if everyone, you know, in thinking about this, if you could just strip all the vegetation off the globe and, and we also have pretty active geology, but just look up at the moon tonight yeah. at all those craters. Right. We're hit at a, at the same frequency. That's Most bodies right. that are coming in here, right. they either hit the moon or hit us, right? right. So we got a little more gravitational pull. But if you want to know just, just how often the yeah, Earth has that's, been hit. That's, the way my, that's exactly where my brain goes. Like, look at the moon, look, guys. Look at, look at all those craters. That's yeah. us. And it might yeah, have been an excess. This is what was so startling about the asteroid impact is, is that, you know, geologists had kind of purged these thoughts from their mind because – 
geology had to first kind of kind of get past like biblical tales of the flood and things right. like this. So the idea of catastrophe was very distasteful to geologists. Right. right. So the idea that a rock would come in from space and essentially rewrite the history of life almost in an instant shook them up. There was, there was enormous resistance to this idea. I, I, I remember it, in the, you and I can look up at the moon and go, duh. I, I know. <laughs> I, I remember reading about it in the seventies. There was a Russian scientist that wrote a book called the, collisions of something i forget what it was and and he was the, and he was called a maniac and an idiot and and i read it and i thought this kind of makes sense to me you know and he, yeah. he had all kinds of other theories too there were kind of some wild ones how mars was a comet and he had some other sort of things and his timing was all off but the basic principle was right yeah and do you remember and i don't know the year do you remember the shoemaker lady comet that hit jupiter Oh, of course. Do you remember we, we oh. watched a collision in real yes. time? People who are younger may not know that this happened, but imagine how privileged we were to be sitting here on Earth. Yeah. And this is after the asteroid impact theory has been thrown out, has been proposed. And we're looking up at another planet in the solar system getting hit by something so large that you know, it, I mean, it's a, it's a big planet anyway, but my goodness, that was a, that was a huge impact. And uh, so, of course, we know that we live in a solar system where there's all sorts of collisions that have right. um, shaped things. Right. Worlds in collision, it's called, by the Russian. Oh, that's right. I remember, a, yeah. No, Emmanuel Velikovsky, published in 1950. Super. I read it in 1975 or something. Crazy. Yeah, worlds in collision, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and it was like, yeah, I wonder why we're not talking more about this. And ever since then, it sort of has sparked me to ask more questions about these collisions because I have this feeling I mean, where did mitochondria come from, for Christ's sake? It makes sense to me that that came in on a comet or something or an asteroid, and that's where animal cells came from. Well, I, I, I think we feel comfortable about probably mitochondria being, you know, a merger of, of bacteria with, with, other, with another species, this process of, of endosymbiosis, we call it. But I tell you, in terms of life on Earth, that's still a wide open question, Drew, whether it it happened, it originated here or came from somewhere else. You know, we can, we can model it. We can do some experiments that make us think it's probable that it could happen here, but nothing excludes the possibility that life itself arrived here on, on somebody. All right. So now we're back to the origins of life. So one yeah, possibility which, is it. So, so, and there have been, there are at least two other sort of at least hypothesized collisions, right? Like the end of the crustaceous crustacean period or something, right? Well, the, so that is end Cretaceous. The yeah. one we're talking about is the end of the Cretaceous. Oh, that's the Cretaceous. And the end of the Cretaceous. There's a there's another collision I talk about in the book that I bet most people have not heard about. Yeah. Um, but this is about the origin of the ice ages. So the Earth for the last two million years has been in a really weird state. The first ice ages in 300 million years. And I didn't know much about this. And this is recent geology um, being figured out. And here's the deal. I think we all know that there, the, the, there are tectonic plates. The, the oceans and continents are riding on these plates, right? Sort of yep. on, on the surface of the earth on magma. And they move around. Well, 140 million years ago, there was kind of a supercontinent. It broke up. And a little chunk of it, which we know is the Indian subcontinent, was, oh, 60 or 70 million years ago, was down by Madagascar, south of the equator. And it moved faster than all the other continents by far, went north and slammed into Asia, which built the Himalaya. Mm -hmm. But that mountain building pulls so much CO2 out of the atmosphere, it caused the Antarctic to ice over. Might that have and happened they, fast by, because of some uh, collisions? Millions of years, several okay. million years. Right. Okay. You know, because the, the, when I say it collided with Asia, it's colliding at a rate of about 15 centimeters a year. But, yeah. you know, given a few million years, yep, that's yep. a builds up and that has that continued to sort of pull co2 out of the atmosphere and that tilted us into the ice ages a couple million years ago where we're now in this cycle of ice ages where the northern hemisphere you know is covered in ice you know as far south as cincinnati you'd have you know miles thick ice sheets and then they retreat and then they come back and they retreat and that's a very weird climate and uh you can, if you trace the dominoes, the dominoes go back to that Indian subcontinent, which goes back to 140 million years ago when a larger continent broke up. Mm. And you're like, well, these are the domino effects. And you say, well, what, you know, why the hell, is, why the hell is this guy talking about this? Because those ice ages, we really think, are what drove our brains to be so damn big. In terms of, of us it. solving solving the problem of cold. 
That's right. Yeah. That we are the primate that shapes its own habitat. Right. We were tool makers. We use those tools to hunt, to shape things. We conquered fire a mm-hmm. long time ago, mm-hmm. at least 800,000 years ago. And so we could handle these swings in climate because we made our own habitats. And all of that cognitive ability, you know, three, our brains grew threefold in a two million year period. That's startling, startling change. And um, so that's why I brought up this collision is because when you all think about our big brains and why we can have this conversation or, you know, play guitar or whatever it might be, um, that was probably first an, a, an adaptation to the, the climate of the ice ages, which was set in motion by a series of events. I, I always so, thought that that would my, I, I never heard anybody say it explicitly, but I always thought that solving the problem of cold or the, the you know, the improvisation required to, to deal with extreme cold had some effect on development and culture and. And the swings. And in Africa, it's not, it's, it's wet and dry. So it means, you know, you're going, you're, you're getting lands, you know, either getting very wet or getting very dry. You have to move on or you have to find some way to kind of manage your way around that. And uh, we just did this better than, you know, other animals that are around. And that's clear in the fossil record. If you go to places where our ancestors lived, you see lots and lots of other mammals going extinct and you see our ancestors persisting um, and living in these places, leaving a, a great archeological record. And so this is a, you know, well-accepted uh, thought that really we, we owe our big brains to the ice ages. We owe mm. the ice ages to the Indian subcontinent mm. and we owe that Indian subcontinent to a continent that existed 140 million years ago. So support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV ready to get away from it all. Free yourself with Pluto TV stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah. Free, no contracts, no subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android or iPhone and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. And and there's no theory that some of the continent breakup wasn't due to these impacts. That didn't accelerate the... Yeah, I... I, I, I'm not aware of any, I, these, these continents are always on the move. Yeah, so yeah. They, the aggregation and sort of the breakups, um, there's a lot of forces going on, you know, on the surface of the earth that, that drive these things and make the continents move over each other or sl- slide under each other. Um, so not necessarily impacts, but volcanism is really important. So, you know, at the seams between these continents are hot spots for volcanoes. And we do know the biggest mass extinction ever, which is about 252 million years ago, the end of the Permian, that was definitely due to massive volcanism that just poured enormous amounts of gas into the atmosphere. For but couldn't that have been precipitated by an uh, impact? Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. It, 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 and, here's the, and here's the trick. Find, there could have easily been impacts that we don't know about because they get swallowed essentially in this process of the turnover of the face of the earth. Right. And if it's gone essentially into the interior of the earth, we, we can't see it. Right. So we'd have to be pretty much agnostic about that. Or, but, or, or is like, sort of, or, or the evidence is superseded by the latest one. Right? Yes. We just, yeah. we just see yeah. the, the, the Yucatan thing, but now the pole right. shifted at one point. When was that? Oh boy. You're going to need a geologist guess. Okay, but, that, um, but that's got to be related to these the, things. The magnetism of the poles has flipped. Yeah. And it flips. I'm going to, oh boy, somebody's going to kill me for getting this wrong. Um, so geologists use these magnetic reversals to actually date rocks. And I'm going to say the average interval of that is probably a couple, they're not regular, but probably a couple hundred thousand years. Well, so they happen every so often. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize. That. I thought there was one big shift. Okay. Well, that's yeah. or no, they happen pretty often, and we're not sure. We're not really sure of the biological consequences of that. At least I'm not aware of it. Right. Right. But after this show, I'll get some emails. So <laughs> interesting. So, so one of the theories we propose now is that life coming in on a, on a asteroid or a comet or something. What are the more traditional ideas about how life gets going? Just, just chemistry in a pot in a warm pot. Um, and, and just the, the, the laws of thermodynamics playing out with carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, that's it? 
and you get these polymers because we can find the building blocks of life in, you know, in, in materials in space. I mean, the, the things that we're made of, this is Carl Sagan always said, you know, we're, we're space dust or we're stardust. The stuff we're made of, you can find throughout the solar system and throughout the universe, you know, carbon-based polymers, carbon-based compounds. So, and we can simulate in the laboratory here. I mean, this works only 60 or so years old where we have experimented with seeing whether or not molecules can assemble and replicate. And what we think is, you know, basically if you get molecules replicating inside like a, you know, a fat bubble, a fat droplet, that's really like a proto cell. And that's where a lot of the scientific work is. You know, do we know that's how it happened? This is really, this is really about plausibility. We have some plausible scenarios based on chemistry so far, but it's a pretty wide open area. I, mm. I think that um, even in just my scientific career, thinking has changed a lot. And I don't, I, I don't feel that things are settled. So I think the origin of life is, is, is one of the wide open areas for biology. And of course, cosmologists, astronomers are interested in this because won't it be fantastic when we're certain of life somewhere else mm. in the universe? You, know, you, you Obviously, you can read about all these exoplanets and things like this, but most scientists I've spoken to think that life is abundant in the universe, maybe, maybe small, maybe simple, but still abundant. That life is easy to evolve from chemistry is the view of the scientific community that, that I'm aware of. Now, evolving giraffes and dinosaurs and all that, nah. Right, so right. Really but, talking about viruses or bacteria, really, right? Bacteria, single yeah. cell kind yeah. of life being being prevalent, which is still philosophically, uh, you know, yet another yet another uh, challenge for, let's say, traditional thinking. What, what do you mean? Tell, tell me more. Well, the Earth is the center of everything, and that oh. we're the only, you know, we're the oasis in the entire solar system or universe, and that everything was, you know, intentionally sort of put here. Um, if you find life is pretty widespread, and you think that's coming from chemistry, then that tells us there are a lot of experiments in life going on in the universe that makes the earth not unique. I still think the earth is very special. I don't have any problem accepting that, but, um, but not unique in terms of the ability of life to evolve. Right. Uh, and it's again, that I, I, there are so many millions and millions of probable environments that could be suitable to some sort of life and those yeah. have probably been reproduced over millions and millions of years, right? There may be millions yeah. upon millions of opportunities. Yeah. And yet yeah. that that proper alchemy of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and the carbon's not that common, is it? Right? Carbon's not that common in the universe, is it? And then the yeah. right atmospheric conditions and yeah, it's uncanny. That, that number of that number of exoplanets that look to be, you know, that could be okay for life, that would be Earth like. That number just keeps growing. And so you, you and I talked earlier about big numbers. As that number just keeps growing and you start thinking, wow, with that as a playpen, with the universe as a playpen, how many times has life gotten started? You know, there's probably fewer more exciting questions, you know, than that. But but um, but I don't know if I'll I don't know if we'll have a firm answer in my lifetime. And, well, and then you add time, right? And then Oh, the, the arrow of time, as Sean, the other Sean Carroll would say, and and that, is that infinity? Is that one? I mean, it's like that's a just yeah. just the addition of that element of time is overwhelming to think about for our little brains. And this and this is the thing: Earth's story, as recorded in the fossil record, as recorded in the rocks. You know, it's marvelous what's happened here in three and eight about three point eight billion years, and you know, life was small for the first three billion or so, and the last five hundred million is when we have all the kinds of creatures that really enthrall us but that's a lot of time and we you know we have it like the pages in a book now and we can say okay this is once it gets started look at look at all the directions that it can go so we just have to sort of imagine what is going on elsewhere in the universe and right. I, I think most of us think it's a fertile place for life does anybody think there is anything uh, uh, any kind of life that's not carbon-based i think people have have explored that. I, I, uh, I, not my area of expertise. I think we think it's possible. Um, silicon. Okay. But it's not like, you know, things that have properties like carbon. Right. Um, but, uh, again, there's your first, there's one of your first questions. Find me life elsewhere and show me the chemistry. And I'll just, you know, if we could do that experiment today, Drew, I mean, 
it, I, I, I assume our minds would be blown. I yeah, mean, I yeah. think it would be just one of the most exciting things to, to study. Well, I, I noticed, you know, listening to podcasts about physics and stuff lately that they, they're starting to talk about thermodynamics differently than I was sort of trained with it, if that makes sense. What do they call it now? Non-equilibrium. They, they have a, a name for it that I was like, oh, that's an alteration in terms of what I think of as thermodynamics uh, because I, I think of it as an absolute truth but they are now starting to say it's a truth in a box in a certain situation. Yeah, they 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 have now their conditions for their loss. Yeah, I, yeah. This is this you're going to need the other Sean. Okay. Out <laughs> okay. there, I, I I I again I stay among the giraffes and fruit flies. Yeah, me where, too. Right, where where we just we consider it just so <laughs> that that the the, the <laughs> proteins are looking for lower energy states and that's that and that's right. But. Uh, so what, what kinds of stuff interests you these days? What are you looking into? What do you, what turns you on now? Well, the question I've asked most for a while in my research is where do new things come from? How do new things happen? So I've studied questions like, you know, how do butterflies get their spots? And you might say, well, gee, what an esoteric sort of thing, but it's the art of science, you know, is to find kind of the simplest model for the phenomenon you want to understand. And throughout history, the origin of novelty is a really interesting question. How do new structures and new functions come together? Are they, you know, do they come from nothing or are they repurposed from something that already existed? Or something driving it? Well, and, and usually driving that is, is, you know, it's. Well, I mean, but people have, you know, had this sort of Lamarckian yeah. kind of way of looking at things yeah. like, is it driving yeah. it that way or not? Or. No, it's more usually driving it's, it's interaction with the environment or yeah. interaction with each other. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I kind of compliment it recently. My, my research team looks at things like the origin of snake venom. So venoms have evolved many times in the animal kingdom. And you might say, well, where does that come from? Yeah, where does a lethal toxin come from? Yeah. Is, that, is that a normal body protein that somehow has been weaponized? Um, did it, you know, or did it appear from, from nowhere? So these, these are the questions we pursue is to try to understand the, the origin of, of novelty, anatomical novelty and, and biochemical novelty. And, and this is a, this is a longstanding question in evolution. It's one that tormented Darwin because the classic question, if you think of something, say something like a bird wing and you say, okay, if everything has to evolve gradually, then you start to picture, well, then at some point it was only half a wing or a quarter wing. <laughs> right. What uses all that sort of stuff. And it turns out while that's intuitive, you know, wings, had a different history than that. They didn't evolve from quarters and eyes didn't evolve from half eyes and venom didn't evolve out of nothing. So we're tracing the roots of these things and sort of understanding the rules for innovation. How does nature work with existing materials to evolve new things? And some of those new things that can then kind of open up all new ways of living, just like a wing, you know, now allows you to spread across the globe using your wings um, venom allows you to capture prey and, you know, snakes with venom have proliferated all across the face of the earth. So, you know, mammals with milk, um, these sorts of key innovations that led to bursts of success, um, and sort of dominant groups of creatures. And we're trying to get right down to the nitty gritty of, of how those things come into being. Is that your next book? Well, it may be my next and my first <laughs> way back. So, um, so to the butterfly story, I, I, I wrote a book called Endless Forms Most Beautiful in 2005. And that was sort of the first installment of our first glimpses in sort of in kind of the machinery of where new things come from. And it was a distillation of a lot of surprising discoveries drew from the world of um, understanding how creatures are put together and then how they evolve over time. It's a, it's a field called Evo Devo. I don't know if you've heard that one before, but it's because I've, I've, heard, I've heard you, I've heard Sean, both Sean Carroll's use that term. Talk about that. Yeah. So the basic idea is that, you know, one of the most amazing phenomena in life, I've never grown tired of looking at is, is how a creature is made. And all of us who are parents can, can appreciate this. That isn't it amazing that starting with a single cell, you get this amazingly complex creature, be it a, a human or a butterfly. And we made huge strides in understanding that it was really a black box mystery as recently as the 1970s. And this really got blown open in the 1980s and since, and by understanding how creatures are put together, especially the genes that build bodies and body parts that really gave us the footing we needed to understand how bodies change, how you can make, you know, snakes and lizards and turtles and giraffes and 
and all sorts of things. And uh, so that was a book in a, a while ago, and I, I think it probably needs a, a bit of a of a revisiting. So, yeah. so is it essentially sort of mis missteps in DNA transcription? Is that fundamentally yeah, so, what happens? So the, 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 the few major discoveries. So the first thing that blew everyone's mind, no one expected, was that the genes for building bodies, which were first discovered in fruit flies, are not only in lobsters and mice and chickens, but in us, that basically there's a common toolkit of bodybuilding genes. No matter how different the animals appear, they got a lot of tools in common. So that kind of startled us because that meant looks are deceiving. I, everyone was sort of anticipating that there'd be such different genetic recipes for making different kinds of creatures. And we're like, oh, goodness, no, there's all these common tools. So it's not so, so diversity is not so much about the tools you have, the genes you have, but it's how you use them. So you're just getting at that, which is the building of animals requires this choreography between the turning on and turning off of genes. And to build different types of animals, it's the choreography that changes, not so much the genes themselves. And uh, that was a really, you know, 180 to 360 flip and sort of thoughts that we had going into that. And, um, and that tells us that, you know, new, new kinds of animals evolve when, when old genes kind of learn new tricks. And, uh, that's, that's given us a much firmer foundation in understanding not just how the, so the animal kingdom was evolved, but even humans. And again, I want to make sure we're characterizing this for people. It's, it's, the, the, it's the regulation that's important of the genes. In, in time so and much. space. In time and space. But, and that's why we refer, to them, we refer to them as a genetic toolkit. Because if you sort of think about it, any, any craftsman with the same set of tools can build so many different kinds of structures just by using those tools in a different way, you know, from a block of wood or whatever it might be. And so we were surprised to find those common tools, but understanding that it's all the little brush strokes in time and space that, um, that give you the differences in, in form. And that's a matter of regulation. But there's also, you know, not just the regulation in terms of timing, isn't there also regulation in terms of start points and that kind of stuff too? So, so right. even though the same sequence may be there, if you start in a slightly different place, you get a totally different thing. You get a totally different thing. So yeah. whether you have four legs or six or six legs or eight, um, how big different proportions of the body are, do you have a long tail, do you have a short tail? All this is where you start things and how long you run a program. So do you want to make lots and lots and lots of backbones and build a snake? Or do you want to make you know, a more compact animal? So it's, it's running these sort of little subroutines uh, at different times and places. And, um, it kind of makes sense when I describe it this way, but we had no clue going into it that yeah. that was going to be sort of the logic of life. Interesting. I, is there another book underway right now? Uh, not at the moment. This last one just kind of, it's, you know, this is only, this is only a few weeks old. Okay. So get this and, one. Uh, we're let's, we're, we're and, reloading. You know, we got to make some more discoveries. I, well, I'm sure there's, well, there's always more to talk about, but, but we can, uh, if you buy this one, there'll be another one. It's a series of fortunate events. Chance and the making of planet, the planet, life, and you. And uh, we've done a little taste of what's in the book, and it's uh, it's a complete survey where all the dots are connected, as opposed to my just jumping around like we did today. So I, I really appreciate you coming in and spending time with us and uh, putting up with my schedule. And thank you for that. Um, I, I would love to talk to you again as more stuff goes on. I'm I'm I, I'm, so, I'm sort of fundamentally trained as a biologist, so this stuff. It fascinates me, uh, you know, and, and I guess I was reared in an age when biology meant evolutionary biology and, and Evo Devo was sort of part of the whole phenomenon that was being discussed at the time. And uh, it's just it's just instinctively in me to sort of think this way. Yeah, I think, Drew, we, we could we could now make medical school so much more interesting for you. Yeah, uh, no kidding. I got to take some of those basic science classes in medical school because I both took them and taught them. Well, a little dry at times. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. I, I actually brought, I, I just told my son this story the other day. I said, look, I, uh, I was trained, really biochemistry is what I was trained in. And, I, and in, in medical school, the biochemistry class was just a language class. It was just ridiculous. And I brought my problem sets into my professor and I said, you know, this is what I was doing last year. And she goes, oh, medical students would never put up with this. These are graduate, graduate level questions. I said, yeah. I'm in graduate school now. I'd like to. I'd like to adv- progress. I'd like to build my understanding of these things. Oh well, forget it. Impossible. Just just learn the pathways and shut up. Yeah. You know. 
And it's just a historical accident that, you know, we worked out all these biochemical pathways and that was our body of knowledge. Now I've got to imagine that medical school would be driven very heavily by genetics because I mean, genetics has just blown open the doors yeah. on every facet of human biology. Yeah. It's such a piece of, you know, clinical work. Um, but but what, uh, I'll tell you what bothers me is everything is still sort of narrative though, as opposed to basing itself in biology, <laughs> chemistry, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, the MRNA leaves the nucleus and goes out and gets attacked by the ribosome. How? Why does that happen? What's what's the math behind that? Yeah. How does that and how did that evolve? But you would know that you're one of the rare students that asks the question, how does that work and how do we know? Well, and then show me a model, you know, a mathematical model that's based on the chemistry, as we understand. But I think we don't treat we don't we don't we don't we don't treat them teach the biochemistry based in chemistry anymore. We teach biochemistry based in narrative. And that's a, yeah. that's a loss because you lose sort of the sense of what's going on. You also will lose, and here's the thing, it's true, especially in the 60s and 70s. You know, some of the big, big discoveries, Nobel Prize winning. In fact, there was a, there was a really uh, important phenomenon that happened. NIH, which is a mile from me right here, um, you had, I think they were called the yellow coats. Is that right? So if you didn't want to go to Vietnam mm. and you were an MD, mm. you go to research, do research at, at NIH. There was a cohort from the 1960s. I think they won nine Nobels. Wow. And a lot of fundamental discoveries there. And I think that that was a case where medicine was driving research and mechanistic understanding was being driven, you know, by, by people with MD backgrounds. So they were interested in sort of the big picture and the whole being, but they, they knew that the answers of cholesterol metabolism or the immune system or whatever were in the molecules. And they, they drove that agenda for research with, you know, phenomenal success. But I, they, and I know some of those guys and they would tell me that yellow berets they're called mindset in, in medical school is, is different than. Yeah. Yeah. It's you you become a technician rather than a, scientist it's just yes. a different thing so yeah well yeah. listen uh, we can lament that but it's the the state of things uh and and, and there not that there aren't tons of really really bright scientists in medical school they're oh, they're, they're, they're there there are lots of them they're phenomenal i meet tons of medical students drew and i mean the talent and energy and passion is immense so yeah we're, we're, yeah. we're okay it's just a little yeah, different yeah. that's all yeah, yeah. And, and there and there there are plenty that uh, get phds and whatnot and sustain their their scientific uh, sort of uh, frame but yeah. listen, I appreciate all you do, and I appreciate you spending time with us. And uh, thank you again. The book is A Series of Fortunate Events. Get it now. Dr. Thanks Sean B. Carroll, the website, Sean B. Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L.com. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Drew. Bye-bye. See you Take next care. time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.